I invite you to take a Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. I've titled this message, Jesus Christ, Our Advocate Gives Assurance. And so we're going to be looking at Jesus, who is our advocate, and the assurance that we can have in him. Recently, I was talking with some brothers in Christ, and we were reflecting on our lives to this point. And while this is not only true of men, I think it is especially true of men, that we as men look at our lives and we can easily feel like a failure no matter how strong of a front we present to others. Because when we are honest, we have this sense that we have failed or are a failure. And it may have to do with our failure to accomplish what we thought we would by this point. I had a friend who told me a number of years ago, I really thought by this time I'd be driving a Buick. He felt like a failure. Or this sense of failure might be related to a failure to provide to the degree that we think we should for our loved ones. Now, as I said, this feeling of failure is not limited to men. Both men and women at times struggle with feelings of failure, especially when we compare ourselves to others, those that we perceive as our peers or classmates who are excelling in sports or music or they're on the honor roll or they're graduating from college and getting married, having children or buying a new car or their first house, going on a cruise, or able to afford cosmetic surgery. We look at others and we compare ourselves to them and we sometimes feel this sense of failure that we've failed. But for those of us who have considered the greatness of a holy God and the greatness of our own sin, there's a different kind of failure that is uppermost in our minds and hearts. It's the fact that we have failed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we've failed to love our neighbors as ourselves. So the truth is that we have all failed, and the failure is more significant, infinitely more significant, than a mere business venture or falling behind our classmates in terms of accomplishments. We have failed in that we have missed the mark. That's what sin is. It's a missing of the mark. It's a falling short. It was a term that was used in archery of an arrow that fell short of the mark. We've fallen short of God's glory. We've not loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've failed to love our neighbors as ourselves. But the good news of the gospel is that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to take the punishment for our failure so that we can be forgiven and restored to a right relationship with God. And so we need to preach the gospel, this good news to ourselves daily, lest we be overcome and immobilized by failure and the fear of failure. So we've all failed, and our failure, our primary failure, is in relation to God. It's both sin, a falling short or missing of the mark, and it's also transgression, which is a crossing over of a forbidden boundary. In some of the prayer books, it's referred to as sins of omission, 
We have left undone those things that we ought to have done. And sins of commission, we have done those things that we ought not to have done. It's all true. We've sinned in both ways, by falling short and by transgression. And so we need the good news of the gospel on a daily basis. And I want to say and encourage you to consider that the gospel is more than merely a gateway to be entered and then neglected. There are some who see the gospel, this good news that we can be forgiven in Jesus Christ as a gateway. They'll enter through that and then they turn their back on it and neglect it for the rest of their lives. But the gospel is more than merely a gateway. It is that. It is the good news that tells us that we can be reconciled with God, that we can have a right relationship with God. But it is more than that. It is also a guardrail to protect us from pride and the, the pit of despair. A couple of weeks ago, since we didn't meet last Sunday, and a couple of weeks ago, we looked at 1 John verses, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, and we saw in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, that's our character, that our character is free from sin, we lie, we deceive ourselves, and then it goes on to talk about our conduct. It says, if we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves again. So that's what pride says. I, I have no sin, I have not sinned. And I suspect most of us here would not make that statement, but there are some people who do, or at least think it to be true about themselves. When I was in college, I visited a I had a service project to do for school, and I visited a 90-year-old retired attorney in a nursing home. And as we talked together, we were talking about the Bible, and we talked about God's word and the Ten Commandments, and he told me that he had never sinned. And after I picked up my jaw off the floor, I began to think, how can I respond to that, and what does he mean by that? Well, I think what he meant by that is that he had a very strict definition of sin and keeping of the law. He viewed it as outward conformity. And so the fact that he had not slept with a woman who was not his own wife, the fact that he had not murdered someone with his own hands, the fact that he had not robbed a bank or a store, excused him. And he felt like he had not sinned. But we know from our Lord Jesus, he said, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. And if you have called your brother a fool, in effect, you've murdered him and hated him. So there's this prideful mindset that says, if I have outwardly conformed, if I've kept the rules other people look at me and they think that I'm a good person. That's the prideful mindset. And the gospel is a guardrail to keep us from plunging into that pool of pride. Because that is pride. But there, there's an equal and opposite danger. When I was teaching one of our daughters to ride her bicycle, we went out to the cemetery road here, out behind the church building. And... That cemetery road is slanted to the edges, and on either side, there's a ditch. There's a ditch on either side. 
And so you've got to watch out for the ditch on either side. And that's the way it is with spiritual things a lot of the time. There's a ditch on either side. There's a ditch of pride that says, I have no sin. I have not sinned. And there's the ditch of despair that says, because I have sinned, there's no hope for me. I have failed. I have messed up or I might mess up so badly that God will not forgive me. He will not continue to love me or he does not love me. Those are the two ditches on either side of the truth. The truth is that we have all sinned, but there is a Savior who has come to take the punishment for our sin. And so some who lean toward this despairing side, they tend to go through life like the proverbial person with a daisy in their hand, and they're pulling off petals, thinking of God, he loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not because today I sinned. Well, here's news for you. Every day we sin and a lot more than one time a day. But the good news is if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So let's read from 1 John 2, 1 through 6. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So this fear of failure, the the reality of failure and the fear of failure, it's universal. And our primary failure is in relation to God, it's sin and transgression. Pride says, I have no sin, I have not sinned. And some who see the gospel merely as a gateway think, okay, I've entered through the gateway of the gospel, now it's up to me. And so there are some who have this mindset that now that I've trusted in Jesus Christ, now it's all dependent upon me. And I've got to stop sinning. And if I sin, I'm not saved. And so they will tell you, some of these people will say, well, I haven't sinned since I was converted. Or maybe a handful of times. They have a wrong understanding of sin. The gospel says that we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and And us, 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So the good news is that we can be forgiven and not only forgiven, but that the righteous demands or requirements of the law can be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So Paul writes about this in Romans 8. 
He says that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So God put the condemnation of sin upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God in human flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So now those of us who trust in Christ, who have been born again by the Spirit of God, have the Spirit of God indwelling in us, we now have the power to say no to sin and yes to God. So the good news of the gospel is that we have an advocate, and an advocate is one who is called alongside of another. Jesus Christ is the one who comes alongside of us. This is a courtroom, this is courtroom language, the language of advocate. It's a representative, one who is pleading your case before the judge. And so one day, each of us will have to stand before God in judgment. And on that day, you will want the best, wisest advocate representing and pleading your case. On that day, there will be no hiding our failure in relation to God and others. And so on that day, you will want assurance that you will be accepted by God and that your failure will not result in forfeiting the promise of God's loving presence forever. So our text today reveals that this only advocate who can meet our deepest need of having sin forgiven and being accepted by God is Jesus Christ. It tells us what Jesus has done for us and for our salvation. It also tells how we may know and be sure that we know him and are in him so that we may have confident assurance today and every day while we await the day of judgment. We've seen that in this letter of 1 John, there are basically three major themes. The first one is who Jesus is, that he is God in the flesh. There were some who were denying that Jesus, that God had come in the flesh in Jesus, that Jesus merely appeared to be God. But John says, no, he is God in the flesh. We've looked upon him. We've heard him. We've touched him with our hands. He is God in the flesh. And this is critical for each of us to believe and to confess. And then drilling down from that primary truth, there are two implications. One is love towards God the vertical dimension of obedience, the obedience of faith, and the horizontal dimension of love towards one another. And so we're going to see, again, those themes in this text with the emphasis on Jesus as our advocate and love towards God being the evidence that we have been born again, that we are new creatures in Christ. So we have this advocate, and the advocate intercedes with the Father, In our culture, attorneys are the butt of many jokes. But in the best sense of the word, an attorney is an advocate, a representative. And in effect, an attorney even stands in proxy or in place of their client. In a courtroom, the attorney sits beside the client. When the sentence is read, the attorney stands with and beside the client. And Jesus is the advocate who stands with you and beside you. 
representing you before the judge who just happens to be his father. Now, Jesus often had discussions with the experts in the law. Now, I'm not going to call Jesus a lawyer or an attorney, but there is a question, there is no question that he knows the law. He knows the whole law of God, and he understands how it is to be interpreted and applied. And more than that, he knows it experientially in a way that none of us do because he has always obeyed every aspect of the law of God and never broken the least commandment. So this advocate that God has given us in Jesus Christ is not your run-of-the-mill public defender who graduated in the bottom half of the law school class and was not offered a job with the high-paying firm downtown. He's definitely not one of the ambulance chasers who's out looking for his take on a personal injury case and who comes on the TV and says, you know, I don't get paid unless you get paid. He's infinitely better than the greatest dream team of attorneys that's ever been assembled to represent the rich and famous when they get in trouble with the law. This advocate is the son of God. And he says of you and me who trust in him, this one is mine, not my client, but my own. I have purchased this one with my blood and he or she is banking his or her hope on me. There are some legal representatives who have no interest in the truth. Their only goal is to raise reasonable doubt in the mind of a jury. But this advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is intensely concerned with the truth. He will not, and indeed he cannot lie. His goal is not to raise reasonable doubt, but to satisfy the wrath of the judge. And that's what Jesus did. In verse 1, it says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. In verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I just wonder, how many of us used the word propitiation in general conversation this past week? You may not have ever heard that word before, and so we're going to Consider what propitiation means. To propitiate is to satisfy the wrath of God. It's to turn away the wrath of God from the one at whom it was rightly directed. We have some self-identifying, self-confessed space nerds among us. I won't point you out, but you know who you are. You were out there watching the super wolf blood moon and maybe you actually got on camera that little meteorite that hit the surface of the moon during the total eclipse. But if you are one of those space nerds, you may have a greater appreciation of the potential of some heavenly body crashing into the earth and destroying the earth. Now, from the little I've been able to learn about space, I understand that asteroids, this, these largest um, bodies that are out there, typically are out between Mars and Jupiter and don't come too close to the Earth. But imagine for a moment, if you will, that there's an asteroid headed directly at the Earth. It's huge. It's massive. And if it makes a direct hit on the Earth, the Earth will be no more. There is this 
threat of a direct hit, and it has to be averted somehow. And that's a picture of what Jesus did in his propitiating work, his atoning work on the cross. All of the wrath of God that was rightfully aimed at sin and those who've committed sin was diverted. It was redirected from us onto the Son of God on the cross. And that's why Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was bearing the wrath, the righteous judgment of a holy God against sin. Now, there are some translations of the Bible that use a different word instead of propitiation. They say expiation. There's a slight difference between those words. Propitiation, as we've said, is satisfying or turning away the wrath of God. Expiation is cleansing or purging from sin. In his death life, death, and resurrection. Jesus accomplished both of those things, but I believe here it's rightly translated propitiation because the emphasis on is on the fact that God's wrath was rightfully directed towards us and it was diverted, it was turned away from us and turned on to the Son of God on the cross. But Jesus also cleanses us. He purges us from sin. We saw that in 1 John, the end of 1 John One, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us from sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he does both. But here, I believe, the emphasis is on the turning away of God's wrath. And in this verse, it says he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Well, how are we supposed to understand that? That all people are saved? No, the scripture is clear that not all are saved. And so I think the best way to understand that is that it's saying that Jesus is the only means of propitiation for anyone who will be saved. There is no other means of propitiation. You must come to Jesus. You must come through him if you want access to the Father. And his death on the cross, his work of atonement is sufficient for the sins of all who will believe. But it is only effective where it meets with faith. In Hebrews 4.2, the writer to the, the Hebrews said that good news came to us as to them, but the message did not benefit them because it did not meet with faith. So Jesus purchased not the, merely the possibility of salvation for us, but actual salvation for all who will believe. His death benefits only those who believe, but it benefits all who will believe. And we all aspire to assurance and acceptance. We long to be loved by those who are most significant. And God desires us for us to know that he loves us. We see this in verse 3. By this, we know that we have come to know him. We see it again in verses 5 and 6. By this, we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So God wants us to have assurance. In 1 John 5, 13, I'm writing these things that you may know that you have eternal life. So God desires us to have assurance But there are lots of people walking around who have no assurance. 
If you've ever had the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door, knock, 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 and they want to give you their Watchtower magazine, and they want to engage in a long conversation with you, and too easy or too often it's easy to get into a debate that's not profitable. But if you will simply ask them a question, do you have assurance that you are forgiven, that you will be with God in heaven? They will likely say something like this. Well, I hope that I've done enough. I'd like to believe that I've been good enough. But they're lacking in assurance. God desires us to have assurance of salvation, assurance of eternal life. And we can have that because Jesus has come as our advocate. John directs us how we may have assurance. Now, some will tell you that if you want assurance in the Christian life, the way to have assurance is to write down the date when you prayed to receive Christ, the day that you prayed a sinner's prayer, or the day that you walked forward the front of a sanctuary or at a crusade or something like that, that that's your assurance going forward, that you are saved. If someone comes up to you on the street and asks you, are you alive? Would you pull out your birth certificate to prove that you're alive? When you first trusted Christ, that was the moment when you were born again, when you were born anew, born from above. But the fact that you were born doesn't prove that you're alive today. The fact that you are living, that your heart is beating, that you're breathing, proves that you're alive today. And so John tells us, in verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So where do we look for this evidence? Where should we look for evidence that gives us assurance of salvation? John is saying, look to your own life. Now, if you're listening carefully, that may sound like blasphemy look to my own life and base my assurance on that? No way. But look at the text. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. By this, we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So how are we to understand this? God is telling us that when we are saved, by grace alone, through faith alone, that God begins to work in us a gracious work of transformation so that we are enabled to obey. By faith, the obedience of faith that Paul was seeking to bring about in the people in Rome. But it's all of grace. We don't switch from grace to works once we've come to initial faith. The grace that saves us is the same grace that produces fruit. Paul wrote to the Colossians, in the same way that you were saved, the same way that you came to Christ, so walk in him. So we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves us is never alone. It produces fruit in our lives. And the fruit is the obedience of faith. And so we can look at our lives, we can look back upon our life before we knew Christ, and we can see that I'm not the same person I was. I'm not who I used to be. Now, we're not who we're going to be. 
when Jesus returns, but we're not who we used to be. We have become a new creation in Christ. And when we look at that and see this gracious work that God has done in our hearts, that gives us assurance that we belong to him. Our assurance is not based on our performance. It's not based on the perfection of our obedience. Our assurance is based on the perfection of our Savior. But our Savior is such that he, when he saves us, brings about a new relationship to the law. He writes it upon our hearts, and he enables us to keep it, whereas before we were unable to do so. So obedience is not the basis of our salvation. Jesus Christ is the basis of our salvation. But obedience is the evidence of saving faith and God's grace in our life. And the type of obedience we're talking about is not perfect obedience. It's not that you will never fall or never stumble. It's not perfection, but a new direction that God has worked in us and changed the direction of our hearts and lives so that we are now seeking him through Christ rather than seeking our own will. So our assurance is not based on our performance or the perfection of our obedience, but the direction of our heart. If our hearts are directed towards Jesus Christ in the reliance of faith, then God looks at us and he sees the perfect obedience of our advocate, Jesus Christ. So on our so-called best days, we're no more justified than when we first came to faith in Christ. And on our worst days, we're no less justified. God is looking for faith and faith results in obedience. If you trust God as the great physician, if you believe that he knows what is best for you and wants what is best for you, you will follow his commandments because they will make you most happy. God has promised to write his law in our hearts. And he does that through Jesus Christ, our advocate. And so I want to encourage each of us to turn to our advocate to tell him everything about us. Don't try to hide everything, anything. He knows it all. Even in the worldly realm of the courtroom, advocates don't like to be surprised before the judge. They don't want some evidence turning up that they hadn't heard about before. And so you can confess all of your sins to your advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he will advocate on your behalf. And he will produce, as you rely on his power and his spirit, he will produce the obedience of faith, the, the fruit of the spirit in your life, and you can look at that and see that God has made you his own, that he has transformed your life and will continue to do it until the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, our advocate, gives assurance receive his assurance today. Let's pray. Lord, although we were children of wrath, you caused your wrath to be directed to the cross upon your own son who took on human flesh and bore our punishment and our penalty. And so he is now 
our righteousness, our one defense. And so we say to you, Lord Jesus, how we need you. You are our righteousness. You are our one defense. Lord, how we need you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would guard us from the opposite dangers of pride, thinking that we have no sin or have not sinned, and the danger of despair, thinking that because we have sinned, that there is no hope for us. Keep us on the path, the way of Jesus Christ and his gospel, that we would recognize that though we have sinned, that there is a great Savior who is our advocate, and he is pleading our case, interceding, always interceding for us. So, Lord, we thank you for him. We thank you for the life that is ours in him, and we give you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.